think um, one of you gentlemen took my sermon notes. <laughs> trying to set me up. Didn't you? <laughs> Wanted to see if I had it memorized. Right. Well, it's good to see you this morning. I know we look, there's people that are out. Uh, we have people that are still suffering from sickness and, and whatnot. So we do uh, continue to remember our brothers and sisters, our church family in prayer. I'm glad to see that you are feeling well enough to be here this morning, though. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis. Uh, we're starting in chapter 38. This morning, we're going to consider Genesis 38 and 39, contrasting two brothers. That sounds like a lot to cover, and, and so we'll hopefully expediently get through this. I would like to read of, of chapter 38, verses 15 through 19, and then drop down from 24 to 26, and then we'll turn over to uh, chapter 39 and read verses 7 through 12. So we won't read the entire chapters for time constraints. Starting in chapter 38, verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. For she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter in law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Down to verse um, 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. And turn over to chapter 39, uh, verses 7 through 12. Starting in the last half of verse 6. Now Joseph was a handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that, is, that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by the garment, saying, lie with me. 
But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you have given us your word. Your word is a revelation of yourself to us, Father. You have given us this great grand story of redemption from start to finish. And Father, you have not uh, glossed over any of the details, but you have given us these stories of these patriarchs to uh, show your grace and your mercy. And Father, our great need of a Savior. And so we thank you and we pray that we can learn from this things that we ought to do and things we ought not to do to be better Christians, to glorify you, Father. Would you do this in our hearts and minds today? We ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, our previous passage in chapter 37 left off by telling us Joseph's fate. The Midians had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. And when we turn to chapter 38 with cautious anticipation, wanting to find out what will become of young Joseph. But wait, that's not where the author takes us. But takes us almost as an aside into the picture of Judah's life. Chapter 38 is not about Joseph, but about Judah. Derek Kidner calls chapter 38 a rude interruption. He writes, as a piece of family history, this chapter is important in settling the seniority within the tribe of Judah, and it contributes to the royal genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, and Luke chapter 3, verse 33. As a rude interruption of the Joseph story, it serves other purposes as well. It creates suspense for the reader with Joseph's future in the balance. It puts the faith and chastity of Joseph, soon to be described, in a context which sets off their rarity, and it fills out the portrait of the effective leader among the ten brothers, end quote. In these two chapters, we will see a stark contrast between 38 and 39, between Judah and his younger brother Joseph, we will see the difference between lust and purity, living for self versus living for God. And hopefully we will be able to avoid the one while doing the other. In today's passage, we will, our Lord willing, consider the problem with Judah in chapter 38, and then consider the problem with Joseph in chapters 39. We will contrast the two brothers' characters and actions, and in doing so, attempt to make the right applications to our hearts and lives. It is my hope and prayer that God will be pleased to meet with us today in his word and continue to sanctify us by his truth and this for his glory. And so we come to chapter 38, the problem with Judah. Chapter 38 opens with the words, It happened at that time that Judah went down for, from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. It is not expressly spelled out for us why Judah decided to leave his family and go live among the Canaanite heathens. But we will be told the disastrous results. 
Bible commentators speculate that he did this maybe from a guilty conscience, having just sold his brother, one of his own brothers, into slavery. Um, or at least he had orchestrated the sale. Or maybe it's his guilty conscience and his participation in the deception of his father Jacob, deceiving Jacob into believing that there, his son Joseph, his, his favorite son Joseph, was killed and devoured by a wild animal, a fierce beast. It may be that his father's refusal to be comforted was a daily reminder of what he, Judah, had done. Or it well may be just an insight into his character. I think all of those things give us a look into his character. Either way, Judah made a conscious decision. This is important. He made a conscious decision to absent himself from the covenant community. And that's going to come in later on, dear ones, in application for us. He left the covenant community by choice and went to live among the, the Canaanites, the heathens of the land. And so let's look at Judah's character. The fact that Judah sold his own half-brother into slavery and then left the covenant community speaks volumes about his character or shall we say lack of character, at least lack of godly character. He takes a wife from among the, the Canaanite women, which was something that he shouldn't have done. Remember Abraham and sending his servant back to his home country to get a, a wife for Isaac? He must not marry one of these women. Later on in the life of the nation of Israel, God will expressly forbid intermarriage of Israel with the Canaanites, with the, the heathens of the land. Why? Because they would cause Israel to go whoring after other gods and to commit vile sin. We see that starting in that concept even here in this chapter. Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, had, had been really concerned and, and, and hurt by Esau marrying two of the Canaanite women, two of the women of the land. You know, he tried to smooth it over by going marrying one of uh, Ishmael's daughters, right? Well, she's one of our relatives. And they had been very careful to send Jacob. I know the, the, the reason they sent Jacob away uh, was to, for his protection, but it, they sent him away with the express instructions, go back to your home country to find yourself a wife. Do not marry one of these. And so Jacob um, didn't do a very good job, did he, of instilling that in his own sons, that they ought not intermarry. Um, remember the brothers used that whole thought to deceive the men of Shechem we can't intermarry with you because you're not circumcised. You're not part of our covenant community. And so you would think that they would know better. They are different. They had the sign of circumcision, which set them apart from the heathens in the land. And yet Judah did not take that to heart, but goes and marries a Canaanite woman. And, and we're not even given her name. We're just told that who she's the daughter of. We're not, we're not given her name. 
He followed in his uncle Esau's footsteps. His first mistake was leaving the covenant community and becoming friends with a Canaanite and then taking a wife from these heathen people. But not only did he do so, he married this woman. He had three sons fairly quickly by this woman. And then when his sons were old enough, he got for them, for for his oldest son, Ur, a Canaanite wife. Her name was, we are given her name. Her name was Tamar. So he was a failure as a father. And we see that in the ungodly actions of his, at least his first two sons. Because we are told, we're not told what Ur, what he was guilty of. We're not told what his sin was, but we are told this. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now, let's, let's pause and, and consider that for a moment. In this day and age where people get all glassy-eyed and say, God is love. God is a lot more than love. God is just. God hates sin. And God kills the wicked. Now, so far, just in the book of Genesis, we have seen God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, Genesis 7.23. Later, we were told that God rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground, Genesis 19, 24 through 25. Here in our passage today, it is the very first time that we are recorded in Scripture where God specifically, we're told, he kills this individual. Now, we know that God is in charge of life and death. You know, we could say God kills everybody that dies because he takes their life out of here. But this is something different. This is an act of punishment. This uh, equates to the same thing that happened in the New Testament to Ananias and Sapphira, that God killed them. You know, sometimes we think we need to defend God. (laughs) Well, God doesn't do anything wrong. Well, no, he doesn't do anything wrong. See, when we kill, if we do so wrongly, it's called murder. When God kills, it's justice. And so we have this recorded not just once, but twice in our passage. Now, what's called the Leverite custom, although not commanded expressly by God until the children of Israel received the moral, religious, and civil laws at Mount Sinai, and it's recorded for us in Deuteronomy 25, 5-6. Although it wasn't expressly commanded by God until then, when, nation, when Israel was a nation, it was widely practiced, okay, what this practice was. And, and it was practiced even in Jesus' day. But what this practice was is if, if the firstborn died and he was married and he died and didn't have children, the next in line would marry his widow, and the first 
heir that was produced would be the firstborn's heir. Okay? In other words, the second man in line was not necessarily the firstborn heir now since his brother was gone, but had to produce an heir for his brother, that his brother's name and lineage would continue. And God would command it of the Israel's, of Israel's nation later on. But this, this was also practiced within the, the heathen communities. This was something that just wasn't uh, the patriarchal uh, understanding, okay? And, and even in some of the Canaanite and, and the, their, those folks there, if there was no brothers to, to propagate for the, the, the one that died, then the father-in-law was responsible to produce an heir for his son. Now, I don't, that's not what took place in this chapter. I mean, it did, but not because of the law. We'll see that later. And so Judah, since God had killed Ur, Judah told his second son, Onan, to marry his brother's widow, Tamar. We're told, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. In other words, he wouldn't get the firstborn share of the inheritance. Okay, so we don't have just sexual lust here. We have greed and selfishness, dishonoring his brother. It says, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he, that means God, Yahweh, put him to death also. So God killed his older brother because he was wicked, whatever his wickedness was. A lot of people say it was some type of sexual sin. We don't know. But we do know what Onan's wickedness was. That he, he would use his brother's widow to gratify his own fleshly lusts, but made sure that he did not fulfill the command of his father and what was expected of him to, to give her a son for his older brother. And it was wicked. It was evil in the sight of God to the point that he killed him. Now, God doesn't deal with everybody the same way. Okay? God has given us certain examples to, to warn us away from things. But God doesn't just kill outright everybody who's sexually immoral. Trust me, they will pay for that unless they find forgiveness in Christ. You know, I've heard people say, you know, this is proof. If you are sexually immoral, God's going to kill you. Well, the wages of sin is death. Okay? Don't, don't forget that. Do not gloss over that point. The wages of sin is death. But you can find forgiveness in Christ. There can be a forgiveness. There can be a cleansing. There can be a healing. There can be reconciliation. The next part of Judah's character we see is dishonesty. And superstition. Dishonesty and superstition. Now, some people argue that 
superstition is not wrong. Uh, the way I see it is God's in control of everything. So I don't need to, to worry about these wives' tales or these old uh, uh, superstitions like a black cat crossing my path. You know, if anything, I speed up. No, I'm, I shouldn't have said that. Or walking under a ladder or breaking a mirror. I mean, these things are all baseless superstitions that actually, I would say, lean more toward uh, devil worship and witchcraft and and spiritual things like that, okay? We ought not to be superstitious. God's in control of everything, you know? But Judah here is superstitious. He, he is blind to the fact that God killed his sons, and he places the blame on Tamar as if she's a black widow. You know a black widow, right? What do they do? They, they kill their mates. A lot of spiders do that, actually. For some reason, he's blaming her. I've just lost my two oldest sons. So what does he do? Get out of here. Well, basically, that's what he tells her. Go live in your dad's house, remain a widow, and then he throws a lie in. When my youngest son, Shayla, is old enough, <laughs> then you can marry him. And we know J- Judah had no intention of that happening. It says there in the text that he didn't want to lose his younger son, his youngest son. Now here, as part of Judah's character, it's showing that he's abrogating his responsibilities. As the father-in-law, Tamar is his responsibility. We'll see that later in the text, in the chapter, because she's still under his authority. She should have been living in his house under his care. And so he even passes that off and gives her back to her father. He says, go live in your father's house. And then we're told in verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. Now, verses 1 through 11 span about 20 years because he had to get married. His, his sons had to get at least old enough to get married. So we're thinking they were late teenagers, maybe, when they, they got married. And so his youngest son's probably in his mid-teens somewhere. And so it would take a few more years, a couple years, and he would be old enough to marry, right? And then the last part, uh, verses 12 through the end of the chapter, probably span a period of just under two years. Now, I want to say, this is running concurrently with chapter 39. Okay, The things that are happening to Judah are running concurrently to the things that are happening to Joseph. Okay, This is not just a, some aside where, okay, now we, this stuff took place, and then now this other stuff is going to take place. No, it's all taking place concurrently over a period of about 22 years. And here's where the story takes a, a sordid twist. Because now we've seen Judah's character, but his main character trait we're going to be introduced to here now is his lust. Now, the fact that his two older sons were wicked 
and one of them was sexually at least wicked, speaks to them learning this character trait from their father. Because now we will see it lived out in his life. He's comforted, says, for however long it takes. To, he was comforted after the death of his wife. And then he goes over to uh, where the sheep shearers are. Now, in, in their times, we know that um, harvest time was a time of feasting and revelry, right? Well, the same with the sheep shearing time. It was a time of revelry, parties, drunkenness, especially among these heathen people that Judah lived with. And so Tamar, realizing that her father-in-law is not going to give Shelah, or whatever, however you pronounce his name, his youngest son to her as a husband so that she can produce offspring for them, comes up with her own plan. And she's going to take advantage of the sheep-shearing revelry parties and knowing Judah's character, she's going to take advantage of that as well. So she dresses up as a cult prostitute. She goes to where she knows he's going to be passing by, knowing his, his character, and he's probably drunkenness and, and, and part of the partying and revelry. And she tricks him into being intimate with her, thus becoming pregnant. Since Judah didn't have the asking price at the time, she took a pledge. And of course, he gave her, he let her choose the pledge, and she chose wisely, I may add. She chose his signet, which was probably a, some type of seal, family seal, that a man of, man of prominence would carry around with him on a cord, probably around his neck, and a staff. Now, a staff was probably, each person's staff was individual to that person. So you, you would know, hey, that's my staff. Probably had carvings or, or what, ornaments, whatever he would have on there, uh, a man of prominence would have. And we know that Judah was probably rich because his father was very rich. So she takes it. She takes the signet, says, okay, I'll take these three things, your signet, your cord, and your staff as a pledge that you will send me, uh, pay the price of the young goat from the flock. As we see in the story, though, Judah, he's, he, he has a little bit of integrity. <laughs> he, he wants to get his signet back, right? So he, he does send the goat by his friend. And, and of course, they, they couldn't find the, this cult prostitute. And they ask around a little bit, and the men of the place say, no, no, there's no cult prostitute here. And so as not to become a laughingstock, Judah just drops it, said, whatever, I kept my end of the bargain. I sent the price. We couldn't find her. You know, all's well. And a few months later, though, it's discovered that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who's supposed to be living as a widow in her father's house, is pregnant. And they tell him she's pregnant by immorality, which is a true statement. We're not excusing what Tamar did. It is a true statement. She was immoral. And so he immediately 
then that shows his hypocrisy because he immediately jumps to conclusions and passes judgment. Bring her out and burn her. Condemning her for the very sin that he took part in, that he was guilty of. Because it doesn't matter that his wife had died. That doesn't excuse his sexual immorality. You know, this the meaning of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, judge not lest you be judged. Doesn't mean that we're not to be judging. Doesn't mean that we're not to be discerning. But it specifically means don't you dare condemn somebody especially of something that you yourself are guilty of. And that's exactly what Judah did here. Bring her out and burn her. But now the pledge turns into insurance, life insurance. Because we're told she sends word to her father-in-law Judah, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. She said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. (laughs) Judah is caught in his sin. Judah is caught in his hypocrisy. Busted. He has no grounds in which to carry out the execution since he would have to be executed with her. The fact that this was reported to Judah and Judah passed judgment tells us that she was still under his authority and should have been in his house. Of course, he identifies those signet, the cord, and the staff as his and proclaims, she is more righteous than I, or or maybe more accurately, she is righteous, not I. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. Then we're told of the birth of the twins at the end of the chapter. Several significant things about this. Um, One put his hand out when, when she was in labor and the midwife ties a scarlet thread around it. Where else do we see a scarlet thread? Or rope, maybe? Rahab, the prostitute, saving the spies of Israel. So this is supposed to be the firstborn. But he draws his hand back in, and the other one comes out. There's twins now. The other one comes out, and that's why they named him Perez. Perez means breach, or one who breaches. He, He passed by his brother who was supposed to be the oldest, who was supposed to be the firstborn. But in the providence of God, Perez comes out first. And of course, Perez, if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, in Ruth chapter 4, Perez is named in the genealogy of David, King David. And of course, even more importantly, in the lineage of Christ, the Messiah. And so the chapter ends recording for us the birth of twins. But rather than continue on telling us now 
about the life of Perez and the rest of Judah's family, chapter 39 brings us back where we left off in chapter 37 with Joseph being sold into slavery. Back in Egypt, Joseph's story picks up where it left off. Joseph is sold by the Ishmaelites, Midianites, it says in the other one, to a very important official in the Egyptian government, Potiphar, captain of the king's guard. Now, just in case you're wondering what we're doing with chapter 38, we're going to come back to that later. And we're going to do a side-by-side comparison, and then we're going to do some takeaways from those two chapters. His pagan master, Potiphar, whose name means he whom the sun god has given, was very quick to see it was Joseph's God who was truly giving. And so we're told in the first part of verse 6, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So let's look at Joseph's character. Because Joseph's character will come under attack here as well. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. The last part of verse 6. And verse 7, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Cast her eyes, um, looked lustfully. uh, Not uh, like a, a, she was enamored with this young man. She could not stop looking at him. And the look became a, a, a leer, a, a lustful stare, and a desire that just welled up in her. And she finally approaches him and informs him of her desire for him to be with her. One Bible commentator writes, By now the tigress had scented her prey. Joseph was a young man with all the man's natural passions and desires. He was friendless, cast out by his brethren, a stranger, and a slave in a foreign land. He must have been sorely tempted by the persistent woman. After all, the devil would probably whisper, why not? Nobody knows you down here. Take what she offers. Morals are free and easy enough in Egypt, so long as you're not caught. After all, it's natural for a young man to flirt with an attractive woman, end quote. Another writes, Joseph probably had calculated the risk. By succumbing, he would have the opportunity for further advancement and recognition, if, of course, the affair could successfully be concealed from Potiphar. By refusing, he would incur the wrath of a woman without moral standard, end quote. Now, we don't know what went on in Joseph's mind. He had already risen to a position of prominence. But rather than let that go to his head, that was a testimony to Joseph about God's faithfulness. Joseph understood why he was being blessed, why everything he did was blessed. Because God was blessing him. And so this shows us a very clear picture of his character. 
But he refused and said to his master's wife. Now listen to his response. Listen to his response. Gentlemen, would we respond like this? I hope so. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? Does he say that? No. It would be a sin against Potiphar. It would be a sin against Potiphar's wife. It would be a sin against the covenant community. But Joseph understood at the very heart of it what all sin is, an affront against God. How can I do this wickedness, this great wickedness? It's not some little pet sin. It's not something innocent. Well, if we love each other, it must be okay. No. Sexual sin is is vile in God's sight. It's great wickedness, and Joseph understood that. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I mean, it would be wrong for me to betray the trust of my master, Potiphar. But it is so much more heinous to betray the trust of my God. I mean, look how he's blessed me. Dear ones, we do that all the time, don't we? We spurn the blessings of God. For the sin. We ought to have a character like Joseph. And say no. I'm not going to sin against my God like this. His reaction to this temptation. Stands in stark contrast. To that of his brother. Brothers. Especially Reuben. And Judah. We should not only follow Joseph's godly example. Dear ones. But we are commanded to abstain from sexual sin. Now, I have to say it in this day and age, I'm not just preaching to the men. Women are just as guilty of sexual morality as men are. And we won't go into any details. And you just look at around you at society and you can see that very fact. If somebody mentioned this morning, uh, how many different genders they're trying to argue. And that's just immorality. That's just an excuse and license to sin sexually. The Bible says, you shall not commit adultery, Exodus 20, verse 14. Just in case, dear ones, that you want to argue, and you would be wrong, that this is just a command in the Old Testament. It was just for God's people in the Old Testament. The New Testament commands flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 1 Corinthians 6.18. That's not just a standalone command. Again, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Ephesians 5.3. Yet again, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry, Colossians 3, 5. And finally, if those weren't enough, for this is the will of God, 
your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. First Thessalonians 4.3. Joseph had it right. We ought to get it right. Because our great God is worthy and deserving of our obedience. And so we see Joseph's punishment. Potiphar's wife finds him alone one day in the house. Nobody else is in the house. No other, other the, the men servants are in the house. So she grabs him by the, the coat and says, lie with me. Well, he, in his haste to flee, leaves his coat with her. And, and her rage, now she's going to turn around and cry out, help. And so the servants come in, and she gives her story. He tried to have his way with me. And so they detain Joseph until Potiphar gets back, and then she tells Potiphar. She kept the coat, and she tells her husband. This servant who you brought in the house tried to humiliate me. He came into me. He tried to uh, have his way with me. Now, I don't know to the extent, to what extent Potiphar may have believed or, or not believed his wife. I think with his position of authority, if he had truly believed her, he would have executed Joseph on the spot. But he had to save face because all the servants had heard the story. And so he locks Joseph up in the prison, the, the Pharaoh's prison. And so we see Joseph's reward for his godly character. He's thrown in the dungeon. But more importantly, we see Joseph's God. <clears throat> Starting in verse 2 and ending in verse 23, this section is bookended with the phrase, the Lord was with him. <clears throat> everything, everything that young Joseph did, the Lord blessed. <clears throat> and consequently, even his time in prison was blessed, as we read at the end of this chapter. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So even in punishment, Joseph is blessed by the Lord. In a way of conclusion, by way of summary, we're going to take a quick comparison of these two brothers side by side and then some theological takeaways from the Judah story and some theological takeaways from the Joseph story. Judah voluntarily left the covenant community. Joseph was forced to leave the covenant community. Judah was punished by God in the death of his two sons. Joseph was blessed by God. He was promoted in Potiphar's household. Judah sought out sexual immorality. 
Joseph fled from sexual temptation. Judah was hypocritical in judging others. Joseph was faithful to God in all things. Then here comes the surprising ending of these two chapters. Judah was blessed and was given two more sons to replace the two that God had killed. Joseph was put in prison. That don't seem right. That don't seem fair. But that too is in the purposes of God. So a few theological takeaways from the Judah story. You are setting yourself up for failure, dear ones, when you purposefully absent yourself from the covenant community. This is the covenant community. You are setting yourself up for failure when you purposefully absent yourself from the covenant community. Second thing we can take away from the Judah story. God hates sin and punishes the wicked. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if God punished it in the Old Testament, God punished it in the New Testament, God still punishes it today. God hates sin. Period. The third thing we can take away. The failures of God's covenant people cannot and will not prevent God from keeping his covenant promises. We see that in the birth of Perez, who is in the lineage of Christ. Fourth, this story about the messianic ancestry very, very, very clearly points us to the absolute necessity of a Messiah. And more importantly, to the absolute necessity of the virgin birth. Because so many of these in in the line of Christ were born out of sin. Born into sin. Born as a result of sin. Perez was born as a result of sexual immorality, was he not? Which shows us our absolute need for the Savior. But it shows us the absolute need for the virgin birth. Why? Well, look at all of these descendants of Christ. I mean, I mean, from, from whom Christ descended. If he's not born of a virgin, he inherits the same sin nature that each and every one of those men before him had. And he is no longer a savior. Because he's just a sinful man and can't even pay the price for his own sins. Even if he were to live a perfect life as a man, which he did, he would have still inherited Adam's guilt. He would have still inherited Adam's sin nature, and he would have been a sinner. And this shows us in this chapter, because this is where the Bible really starts to set apart the line of Judah as the messianic line, as the kingly line, as the messianic line. The need of a savior to save his people because the covenant community is a community of sinners. Sinners saved by grace, but sinners nonetheless. And so those are some things that we can take away from the Judas story. And hopefully 
they will make us be better Christians, more glorifying to our Savior. So we have a few takeaways from the Joseph story now. No matter how bleak your situation is, God is working all things out for your good, for your sanctification, if you truly belong to Christ. No matter how bleak your situation is, no matter how low you find yourself, if you truly belong to Christ, God is working all things out for your good, for your sanctification. Second, there is always a way, always, always, always a way out of temptation. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Dear ones, when tempted, look for that way of escape. Don't flirt with the temptation. Don't try to rationalize it. Don't don't become buddy buddies with the temptation. Look for that way of escape. And when you see that way, run. Flee. Get out of that situation. Get away from that environment as quickly as you can. We'd see that here in, in chapter 39. Joseph had to flee to keep himself pure. And he did. Third thing we can take away from this chapter. And I know there's many more things we could probably take away, but we don't have time to to mine them all out. But third thing, not even the actions taken against us by people outside the covenant community, by unbelievers, not even those things, the most heinous things that they can do to us, none of that can thwart God's plan for his people. None of that. No one can stop God's plan for his people. We see that in Joseph's life. His brothers tried to stop God's plan by selling him into slavery. Potiphar's wife tried to stop God's plan by falsely accusing him. Potiphar himself tried to stop God's plan by throwing him in prison. But God is faithful. No one can thwart God's plan, not inside the covenant community, as we saw in 37, and not outside the covenant community, as we saw in 39. And finally, God will always bless our obedience and faithfulness. God will always bless our obedience and faithfulness, although it might not be immediately apparent to us. I'm sure that when Joseph was thrown in that prison, He was having a hard time seeing how God was blessing him for his obedience, but soon realized as he as he gained prominence within the prison that God was still with him and still blessing him. Dear ones, that's motivation to be faithful to God, is it not? That's motivation to be obedient to God, is it not? For the blessings, but more importantly, for his glory. And for your Christian witness in the world. If you do not know Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you are an enemy of God. You only have the eternal tormenting fires of hell to look forward to. 
But as long as you still draw breath, there is hope. The Bible says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Dear ones, flee from sin, especially sexual sin. Constantly avail yourselves of the private and public means of grace that God has given to us. Do not absent yourself from the the covenant community. There is strength in numbers. Look to Christ as you strive for holiness. Look to Christ to give you the victory over sin and temptation. Remember, it's not a sin to be tempted. It is, however, sin when you give in to that temptation. Look for Christ to deliver you. And flee to Christ for forgiveness when you fail. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. And again, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Romans 4, 7 through 8. Christ is the answer. Christ is our greatest need, as we see in chapter 38. And Christ is the answer, as we see in chapter 39. The gospel is not just for the salvation of the lost. The gospel is for the sanctification of God's saints. Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ daily. And he has promised to be with you and to not leave you. Let's pray. Holy Father, would you cause us all, each and every one, to flee to Christ now? Be it for salvation, be it for help in our time of need, be it for sanctification, Father, help us to flee to Christ. Grant us this glorious gift of repentance. We praise you and thank you for the forgiveness that we find in Christ. We pray that you would protect us from sin, and especially sexual immorality. Would you keep us from it, Father? Would you help us to avail ourselves of the graces that you have given us? Would you help us to pray for each other in this regard? And that we would minister to each other and help each other as needed, Father, for your glory and for the sake of your church and for the building up of the saints and for our gospel witness in this world. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.